the chance to truly reform a person and set them back on quite the right path. I'm sure the girl will see how fortunate she is to be given such a chance to redeem herself. She comes to us tarnished and will soon be polished to a shine. And such work is surely the perfect preparation for motherhood. For what else is a mother's job than to nurture her children into godly, worthy and virtuous people? I see how well you do with my niece and nephew, dear Ellie and John, and I am full of admiration for your gentle, guiding way with them. Don't fret so over John and his catapult. I am sure he will grow out of this mood of violence very soon. A boy's nature is, by divine design, more warlike than a girl's, and it's to be expected that he feels urges that you and I can't understand. How I look forward to having little souls of my own to grow. Amelia, please forgive me for asking you again, but I fear your last letter has left me still quite in the dark on the subject in question. Must you be so vague, dearest? I know such things are not easily discussed, and indeed are better not spoken of at all if possible, but my need is great, and if I can't turn to my sister for help and guidance, then who, pray, can I turn to? Albert is an exemplary husband only ever kind and affectionate towards me. Each night before we retire, he presses a kiss to my hair and praises me as a good wife and lovely creature. But thereafter he sleeps, and I can only lie and wonder what it is that I am doing wrong, or not doing, or indeed not even trying to do. If you would only tell me in the most specific terms how I should behave, and how our bodies might be conjoined, as you put it. Albert is such a wonderful husband. I can only assume that it is I who am not performing my right function as a wife, and that this is the cause of, well, of my not yet expecting a happy event. Please, dear Amelia, be specific. All is well, then. I had better end this letter now. The sun is high, and the birds are singing fit to burst, and I shall post this on my way to visit poor Mrs. Duff, who has no such problem as I and has been kept abed with a terrible infection since the birth of her sixth child, yet another boy. Then, after lunch, Cat Morley should make her appearance on the 3.15 train. Cat. Such an abrupt name. I wonder if she would take to being called Kitty. Write to me soon. Dearest and best of sisters, your loving Hester. 2011 The first time Leah met the man who would change her life, he was lying face down on a steel table, quite oblivious to her. Odd patches of his clothing remained, the colour of mud, slick with moisture. The bottom half of a trouser leg, the shoulders of his jacket. She felt cold on his behalf, and slightly awkward faced with his nakedness. His head was turned away from her, face half-pressed to the table, so that all she could see were the carved dark structures of his hair and one perfect waxen ear. Leah's skin prickled. She felt voyeuristic, as though he was only asleep, might at any minute stir, turn his head and look at her, woken by her footsteps and the sound of her breathing in that immaculate ear.
You're not going to throw up, are you? Ryan's voice broke into her trance. She swallowed, shook her head. Ryan smiled mischievously. Who is he? Was he? She asked, clearing her throat, folding her arms in a show of nonchalance. If we knew that, I wouldn't have called you all the way out to Belgium. Ryan shrugged airily. He was wearing a white coat, like a doctor, but it was grubby and marked, and hung open to show torn jeans, a scuffed leather belt. First time seeing a dead body? Peter asked, with his calm Gallic intonation. Peter, the head of the archaeology department. Yes, Leah nodded. Always an odd experience. At least with one this old, there's no smell. Well, not the worst kind of smell anyway, he said.